want to know. Can't trust those moose. You certainly can't. Polish moose. That sounds like something that we use by a hair metal 80s band. Polish moose. All right, on our rider, we have three cans of Polish moose. <laughs> and on that note, uh, welcome back to part two here with Andy Eastwood. So last week we were sort of chatting about, about Andy uh, growing up in, in London, in England, mm. working at, you know, uh, department stores, slowly getting into music, recording some yes. stuff. Yeah. Um, so I think there's quite a bit more to cover. So <laughs> we only just started, let's really. Get into yeah. it. So you just recorded your first album, or the first album. It was, that an, you were it was part an EP. On. Oh, EP it was yeah. a four-track EP. Yeah. Uh, and three of the tracks were done in Pathway. We actually did two more songs outside that. And on the day we finished, Charlie, who was Charles Shamari, the journalist I was talking about yeah. in part one, said, um, "I've got a couple of friends that might want to come down and sing on this. What do you reckon?" So we said, yeah, who is it? And he said, well, it's Phil Lynott from Thin Lizzy and Bob Geldof from the Boomtown Rats. That's a bit of a right. Yeah, so we said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So they came down and they did vocals on one of the tracks, which is called Can't Stop the Boy, which okay. Charlie and I wrote together. Yeah. Um, that was a great songwriting partnership, the one I had with him. That was probably the best songwriting partnership I've had because he was a journalist. He was fantastic with words, wrote mm -hmm. brilliant lyrics. Sure. And uh, I wrote most of the music, and then we got together and twisted things until they all fit together. Yeah, cool. And so the first record was two of our own songs and two covers. The, um, one of the covers was a Robert Johnson song called Me and the Devil, which we really hyped up because it was the time of punk. And the fourth track was recorded at the Roundhouse, which is a gig in London. And it used to be a railway turning station in other words it was a big circular building that had a turntable inside where they turned trains around on the mm -hmm. end of the line yep. but they turned it into a gig in the late 60s I think and it was a fantastic venue so when we recorded that down there that was done using the I think the Manor Mobile in other okay. words the, the mobile studio owned by Richard Branson that came to that that's gig. a bit of a ride as well <laughs> yeah and <clears throat> that was my first experience of recording live Okay. It was very, very well done. They were very experienced guys. But on the bill, um, have you heard of a band called Dr. Feelgood from England? They're a yeah. British R&B band yeah. with Wilco Johnson, who yeah. was the guitar player. Well, Wilco Johnson had just left Dr. Feelgood. Okay. And he had actually taken the bass player from the Count Bishops, which is the band that I later joined. Mm -hmm. um, and he'd formed his own band uh, with two other guys, uh, John Potter, who was a great keyboard player, uh, boogie-woogie-type piano player, yeah. and a drummer called Alan Platt. Um, they were very, very good. And they were topping the bill at the Roundhouse, and it was a, a fundraiser for, I think it was something to do with Wordsworth. Um, it was something to do with providing money for keeping some of Wordsworth's works alive in England okay. or, or a foundation like that. Yeah. And second on the bill after Wilco, Wilco was at the top, underneath him was Motorhead. Wow. Yeah, but they were called Iron Fist and the Hordes from Hell because they couldn't call themselves <laughs> Motorhead for contractual obligation reasons. They were between record companies, I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, That's a good name. <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, because that was the title of one of their albums, Iron Fist and the Hordes from Hell. Okay, okay. Um, this was just before Ace of Spades. Okay, so before craziness. Yeah, pretty much before craziness setting because Motorhead at one point were the biggest band in the world for some reason. They had a number one album in London, okay. which was a live album called No Sleep Till Hammersmith. Now, can you imagine seeing a live album by a band like Motorhead, a number one in the album charts? Yeah. And this isn't the heavy metal album charts or the folk album this charts the, like we have now. This is the album charts. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, people were falling over themselves to get to Motorhead by the time they'd had that. Yeah. And that was after Ace of Spades, okay. which was massive. Mm. Yeah, that was, yeah, 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 that's right. But up to that point, they couldn't get a look in, pretty much. Wow, okay. Um, nobody could sell them because they had a hard biker image, known for drugs and booze. Yeah. yeah. Uh, really nice guys, though. Wow. Yeah, nice yeah. to their mums. <laughs> yeah, bring Tim Tams. Um, and Oreos for the uh, Americans. Yes. <laughs> so the band that they were on, and then the Count Bishops underneath them, yeah. and then us at the bottom. So we opened the night. But all four bands got live recordings from that night. It was that okay. good. Well, it was that yeah. good. So we just had one track on there called Crosscut Saw, um, which turned out to be a great performance. <coughs> I must say that the bass player and the drummer on that track are really excellent okay. in the band I was in. We were called Blast Furnace and the Heat Waves. 
Wow, there's some interesting band names. Isn't there, yeah. <laughs> the problem was, at the time, there was a disco band called Heatwave um, who uh, had some quite big hits, and they sued us. Oh, well, okay. Well, I mean, we're pretty similar, aren't we? You know, four black guys playing disco. And, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, and and, and a bunch of white R&B boys, you know, <laughs> dressed in leather jackets. I mean, it's obvious people are going to mistake us on Top of the Pops, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> so Top of the Pops, by the way, is a, a, a chart TV show like Countdown was here. Yes, I, I, um, I do remember Top yeah, of the Pops. Yeah, right, you probably would from Europe, yeah. Yeah. So after that band split up, because we had a, a name issue... Um, our manager at the time, Pete Mannheim, bless him, who's now actually not well, he said, "No, let's fight them. We'll win." And we said, "Are you crazy? These guys, <laughs> these guys have got a you know, smash LP with disco hits, funded by an enormous record company, and we're working for an independent record company, which was actually part of um, Miles Copeland's record stable. Okay, you know yeah. Miles Copeland, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuart Copeland's Stuart brother, brother from the police, yeah. 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 He had a. Who still, does he still? Does he? Um, or he managed Sting for a while, or did he manage the police? No, for he a managed while? the police. Or police, yeah. Yes. Right. <coughs> um, bit of a wheeler dealer, Miles Copeland. Okay. So under the umbrella of that, Faulty Products was the company. We had okay. our, uh, a label. We were on a label called Nighthawk, which was a subsidiary of that. Okay. So I've got something in my studio actually, which is a, a flyer from that time with all the bands on it, and we're about third way down, just underneath us at the police. Oh, cool. So, you know, available for these dates. It's quite a nice <laughs> thing to have. Um, I only met Sting should, once and he was a bit... Should we book uh, them or should we book the police? Yes, yeah, so or should we book the police? They don't know about the police. They're three blonde guys. They don't look very punk, you know. St- <laughs> Sting? What, what kind of a name is that? What kind of a name is, name yeah. is that? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was my history in, in terms of the first things I ever did. So, this record we made, which has got Phil and Bob Geldof, is well over the net. It's become a bit of a collector's thing, I think. Oh, cool. For both of those people, because Bob Geldof obviously went on to do greater things too. And we played some gigs supporting the Boomtown Rats as well, okay. uh, which was yeah. fun because they were colossal at the time as well. They had number one hits and were um, doing massive stuff all the time. Then mm-hmm. they fell completely out of favour, but then Bob Geldof did Live Aid. Yeah. Yeah. And Phil Linert, who. Was um, that 77? Yes, about then, yes. No, seven, No, Live Aid was way after that. That was, was the 80s. 80s. 80 something, Live Aid. Yeah. That was. Um, Wasn't there one earlier? 82, 83, I think. Something like that. Wasn't it? It was. I remember. Or maybe 83. Sadly. I think 83. Sadly. I do remember watching it. <laughs> I did. I watched the whole thing. And it was on everywhere you went. Yeah. Ah. It came blaring out of TV sets everywhere you were. I remember watching it. Um, yeah, I do. Um, I mean, I would have been quite young I would have been like mm. five or six or seven or something right. like that but I do remember it mm. I do remember Live Aid it was a bit of a watershed moment for music because it proved that if you had an idea you could follow it through and it would make a global difference to something mm. and mm. the music oh, could boy, actually it did. It affect did. everything yeah that was great yeah. but by that point um, I we left Blast Furnace and the Heatwaves and I then I did some sessions at um, a studio in Rickmansworth with a producer called Vic Mail, who produced Dr. Feelgood okay. and Motorhead as well and a few other people too. He was a really great producer. And have you heard of a band called The Pirates? You know Johnny Kidd and The Pirates shaking all over? Yeah, yeah that one. Well, it that band really mutated well. into a three-piece band called The Pirates okay. who were really good with a guitar player called Mick Green who you should check out. He's one of the first guys I ever heard play lead and rhythm guitar at the same time. The name actually rings a bell for some reason. Yeah. And he's Wilco Johnson's main influence. Okay. Wilco Johnson from Dr. Feelgood. Okay, okay. But Mick Green had this amazing style on a Telecaster. Okay. And he took me and Rod, who was my mate from Blast Furnace and the Heatwaves as well, who you'll recall from the previous podcast, was working with me at Rose Morris. Yes. He was the harmonica player in Blast Furnace and the Heatwaves. Okay. Great harmonica player. We wrote some songs together and recorded them at Vic Mail's studio, financed by Mick Green. Okay. And the bass player on that was John Gustafsson, who was uh, in Roxy Music. Oh, cool. And was a fantastic player. Okay. And you know Love is the Drug? Yeah. You heard the bass line on that? I have a listen to that. I can't, I can't think of it. it have a listen to it. It's so noticeable as John Gustafsson. Okay. Right, so that's um, his signature thing. Pretty much, yeah, okay. the way he plays. A bit like, you know who Pino Palladino is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fretless player. You can tell it's Pino Palladino on things, can't you? The He's way been he playing with Nine Inch Nails. Has he really? Yeah, yeah. really. Trent Reznor. Yeah. Wow, yeah. that's a strange oh. combination. Yeah, really. Yeah. 
That is an odd combination. It is weird, isn't it? That but must it be been, like there's some. Uh, check, it's, there's, almost, it's almost like I don't believe you. No, no, yeah, yeah like, I was check, thinking the same. I was also thinking. Imagine what the audience is thinking. Why did you bring your grandfather? Check it out. There's there's quite a bit of footage. Leaks plane basically. Yes, that's right. Yeah. What's Santa doing at the back? There's quite Gandalf. a bit of footage on, Gandalf, on YouTube. Yeah. Check it out. Yeah, he's been playing bass. I don't know if it's the last this this past tour, or the, maybe even touring now, wow. or or the tour before. But there's quite a bit of footage. Yes, Peter Belladino playing bass. On wow, Trent that Reznor. is odd. Yeah. That's very odd. Trent Reznor is a bit of a genius. Oh, I, I'm, I love Trent Reznor. I, I think a so. Huge yeah. fan of his, especially his solo stuff and like um, the mm. movie score well, stuff. All, all his yes, he's done quite a bit of that now, hasn't yeah, he? All his stuff is solo stuff because it's the girl with the dragon tattoo score. Oh, did he do that? He yeah, did, yeah. yeah wow. he won an Academy Award for that, I think. Yeah. Oh, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, he's great. But I mean, all his stuff is solo stuff because mm. Nine Inch Nails isn't really a band. No, it's him, him really, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> so yeah. it's all solo stuff. I kind of prefer his side project stuff, anyway. I, I love all this stuff. Anyway, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big nose. Right. Okay. But yeah, anyway, yeah. So sorry, sorry. No, no, no. Yeah, it's all good. It's all good on, stuff. Uh, yeah. Um, and I've completely lost track of what I was talking about now. Um, bass players in the. Gustav- oh, that's right. Gustafsson. Yes, John Gustafsson. Yes. Yeah. So the tracks I've still got the tracks from that, and and they're really well produced. It was the first time I'd seen a producer just go, three buttons. That's it. And the sound was, my God, how do you do that? Wow. Well, okay. I've got to watch what this guy's doing. Um, and I was lucky because I'd also been in a few studios before that too where I'd I'd watched the engineer working and thought I've got to learn how to do this Mm -hmm. and I suppose the first place I really took notice of it was in the BBC studios in London Okay. and the BBC studios runs it's very archaic it starts at 9 in the morning the first session and you've got four hours. And this was a recording for John Peel's radio show and things like that. Have you heard of John Peel? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, check this guy out. John Peel was a DJ that was working from the um, early 70s through to the 80s. He has a massive collection of vinyl. He was a champion of all sorts of music. His first radio show was called The Perfume Garden. Then it was The John Peel Show. Okay. But he would put music on that he knew was destined to irritate about half the population. <laughs> Excellent. And he went from hippie music through punk through everything okay because it was new he would play it his favorite band was a band called the undertones okay teenage kicks is the record that he championed okay. but he championed lots of other bands too and the bbc would record <laughs> sessions with bands in their studios which yeah. would then be played live on air Just, but that in england it happened quite a bit isn't it that there yeah. were djs that were that got so quite big and yes. famous on, on radio that they absolutely they kind of created entire yeah genres almost in, in, in the in same way that music journalists did because yeah, that's yeah. where you heard things you could read about something in a, in a paper <clears> but you couldn't hear it so djs <clears> like john peel would play new stuff because he'd get sent stuff by record companies yeah and he would and he bought a lot of stuff too yeah and he's got a massive collection of vinyl at his house he's he's dead now unfortunately but his wife has kept it the same way it was because he later broadcast his show from his house okay because he had such a huge collection of vinyl and it's all catalogued it's like the biggest record collection you've ever heard of in your life okay okay um and chalky davis the photographer i was talking about in the other piece we did earlier on yeah went to that place and took some photographs of John Peel's record collection some of the stuff that was in it and it's fascinating well okay yeah. and in fact you can go online and find the John Peel archive and you'll, you can get you can almost leave through some of the records it's really interesting well cool That'd be that's worth a look too mm. he, he was a massively influential DJ that guy um, but, and so they would record sessions for his studio show and also a guy called Kid Jensen okay uh, and that's the first time I heard any of my stuff on the radio Oh, cool. And the feeling of walking down Oxford Street with a transistor radio and suddenly hearing your record coming on is unbelievable. I can imagine. Well, I'd imagine so, On yeah. national radio, like BBC Radio. Yeah. You're thinking, oh, I wrote that, and that's me playing guitar in it. big boombox, turning up as loud as you can. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's me. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it's me. Yes, <clears throat> that's right. There's, well, a movie, there's a movie cool. Tom Hanks made called That Thing You Do. Yeah, I know. You know that one? Yeah. yeah. You know that point where they hear themselves on the radio for the first time yeah. and they go roaring down the street yelling? That's yeah. what it's like. Yeah, yeah. It's really like that. Um, so we did myself that. on uh, mm. Noosa Community Radio before. Yeah. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? It's a nice feeling, though, when you hear yourself being broadcast to think anybody can hear this now. Yeah. And that's that was such a great feeling, feeling that. Yeah. I think I've had bass tracks on Triple J. No, we've been, my old band was on, on Triple yeah. we, we played on Triple J. Great. And, um, um, yeah. We had our... our three and a half minutes of fame <laughs> no that's good <laughs> it wasn't double J was it 
No, no, it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> like, or recently. But. I think we did three sessions for the BBC in that band. Then I did one with the Count Bishops as well. Okay. Um, but the studios he made of Air was, was really that kind of thing that you expected to see from documentaries <laughs> about the 60s. Yeah. And here's the technician setting up the microphones. <laughs> and they're wearing white coats and a tie. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because yeah, engineers. Lab, yeah, they lab were engineer. engineers, lab rats, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, but the producers were quite cool, actually. They were quite good, and they knew how to get the best out of you. And the sound in the rooms was really good, too. The thing that was very off-putting was they still had the red light. Oh, oh the on-air thing? Yeah. Yeah. Because it was tape, and there was a limit to what you could do, obviously, because you'd get to the end of the tape and think, oh, whoa, hang on a minute, and you've got three minutes left. Mm. So time was of the essence then. You couldn't just, yeah, whenever you're ready, let's go and wipe it out. It that doesn't exist. Yeah. No, no, no. no. One, two. That's it. So everybody ready? Yes, here we go. And then the red light would come on, which is very tension-inducing. It's only about a million and a half people listening to you right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because it was taped to put out oh, later. So, yeah, I know, but then, yeah, yeah. yeah, but it was like that, yes. And yeah. if you were doing a live radio broadcast, that'd be the same thing you got, except it said on air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very tension-inducing. Yeah. And I think that's the reason why they don't do countdowns anymore when they do rocket launches, isn't it? They don't oh, go really? 10, 9, 8. Was oh, it? Yeah, they don't do that. They go yeah. 10 seconds to lift off. Oh, okay, um, I haven't watched Five seconds to list off. Um, we're lifting off now. Here we go now. Yeah. There's going to be in that proposition. Yes. Any second now. Instead of the <laughs> pants wettingly inducing countdown, which would be on before, wouldn't it? Yeah. Five, four, three. <laughs> ah, mummy! <laughs> As you go screaming off to Mars. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So that wouldn't be great. Small with the fuel underneath you. That's the one. Yeah. So I after that I period, do it. no, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> so after that, I, I thought, well, I wonder what this guy's doing because everything was analog. Yeah, and it looked very much like your racks do now with patch bays. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, and everything was outboard. There so, was. So you got interested in the engineering side of things? Yes, very much so. How how do you do this? How do you make it sound like this? It's all very well being able to play, but yeah. if you can't record yourself, you're going to end up spending a lot of money. Yeah. And that was the first thing that made me think I've got to be able to do my own demos at least. Yeah. yeah, so I can get things out to other people and say this is what I'd like to do next. Yeah. Um, so I watched the engineer, and the first thing I asked him was, "So why have you got one track at the end for effects? Because with tape you had to have one for the return for the effects." Yeah. Yeah. Yeah? yeah. And that was the first point when I started thinking. So all those knobs, they must do the same thing because they all look the same in rows. So yeah. I thought, okay. So presumably I've just got to learn one channel, yeah. and then I'll figure out the rest. Yeah. And that's basically what you do when you start, isn't it? Yeah. It's only when you start looking at the buttons that say strange things like PFL that you think, I wonder what that means. All these bloody abbreviations. Yeah. I know, yes. <laughs> All these acronyms for things. Write the whole thing on it really, really little. Yes, really tiny. <laughs> then we'll never know what it means. You just use a bigger, bigger button. Bigger yes, button. a bigger button. Yes, a giant size one. Yeah, that's right. Prefet. So from there, then when I started going into other studios, the next studio I looked at was um, Maison Rouge, which was owned by Jethro Tull's Ian Anderson. So it was where Jethro Tull used to rehearse and record. Yeah. And that was kitted out very plushly because it had only just been built in the 70s, where as the British made of LBBC studios That's were built in the 50s and yeah, 60s. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Um, and that studio was quite nice. I can imagine. Yeah, and I watched Jethro Tull rehearsing in there, thinking, wow, this would be great to have this set up one day. Then when I started playing in other bands, the band I was in after that was um, with the bass player who used to be in Wilco Johnson's band, the guy that I told you about before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got fired from that because he was pretty hard to deal with. Um, and the drummer called Lucas Fox. <laughs> so let's join a band with him. <laughs> yeah, why not? Good idea. But he was a great bass player, uh. which made me realise that you could be a fabulous player, but a real pain to deal with. And he was, yep. <laughs> but very creative. Um, and the drummer was a guy called Lucas Fox, who was the first drummer in Motorhead. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, because my people think, oh, wow, you met all these people. Well, yes, I did. But if you lived in Sydney in the 80s, you'd probably have met Jimmy Barnes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the yeah. circle you move in. Yeah, yeah. Because the musical world is quite small. Yeah. So having met one group of people, then you sort of, your, your circle widens and you get to include yeah. all these other people. Yeah. So by meeting Motorhead, I bumped into Lemmy all the time. Yeah. And, in fact, before I joined the Count Bishops, 
which was the band I toured Spain with, as you remember from yeah, the yeah, last yeah, podcast yeah. we did, yeah? And I also toured Holland with those guys. That's where I got to play some really big places. That's where you were adjacent to the Stranglers. That's right. Not on top of. <laughs> not not yeah, to the side <laughs> to of the, the Stranglers. And Eddie and the Hot Rods. But that, some of those places were bull rings. Oh, wow, well, okay. Which are big. Yeah. yeah. And the one place that we played in Holland with the Count Bishops was a festival where we were, oh, I think we were um, all about fourth from the top on the bill or something yeah. um, and there was about six bands on before us and this was a huge place and it was the first experience I had of being up on a stage that's actually as high as the roof of a house Okay, all right. where you're looking down on people yeah. and the gap between the stage and the audience is enormous Yeah, and you can't really determine individual people clapping anymore yeah, it's, it's just, just a, like, a, an ocean, like yeah. a wave of people, you know? Yeah. And that was a great experience because I got to play big places with big PAs and big amps. And big amps are great. <laughs> but Especially you can't you can use them, them nowadays <laughs> because no one will let you turn them on. That's far too loud, turn that off. You get yeah. the little voice coming through the monitor. Uh, can you please turn the guitar uh, on, down, please? That line's a bit loud. <laughs> but we, we had double stacks. So, so what were you using? Yeah. Like, was it Marshall 50 watt non master volume heads. Cranked, probably. Yes, cranked. Yeah, yeah. Because at 50 watts, we, at that point I, I wasn't working for Rose Morris, who has to be said, Rose Morris, the company that I started with as a wholesale yeah. guy, they did a very smart deal with Jim Marshall in the 60s. Yeah. Jim Marshall wasn't selling a lot of stuff, and everybody, I presume, knows the story of Jim Marshall's shop in the West End where he invented the 4x12 cabinet yeah, yeah. by cutting an 8x12 cabinet in half. Yeah, because Pete Townsend said that's ridiculous. I can't move that around. Yeah. It's huge. It's yeah. the size of a fridge. Yeah, I'm, it's definitely for Pete Townsend, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, and he also built them for Jimi Hendrix too. I think yeah. that was the beginnings of Marshall, really. Yeah. But Jim Marshall didn't know anything about amplifiers. Most of the stuff that came out of the Jim Marshall factory was designed by a guy called Ken Bran, okay. who was a real genius with amps. Okay. Uh, and I visited the Marshall factory because Rose Morris had done this deal with Jim Marshall, where they said, "I tell you what." How about we market your amplifiers for 10 years? Okay. So, of course, Rose Morris... Good timing there. Absolutely good timing. <laughs> Rose Morris took a commission for doing that and became immensely famous by worldwide distribution of Marshall amplifiers. Yeah. Okay. And Jim Marshall must have thought, why did I open my mouth just yeah. to take my foot out of it? Yeah. Because you imagine how much money he lost in that period. Yeah, yeah, would have a lot. And then Marshall Amps went absolutely through the roof yeah. in terms of sales. Everybody was using them once, the, you know, Cream, Jimi Hendrix, all the bands from there. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you got Akadaka yeah. with walls of Marshall. Yeah. yeah. So I got, um, at that point, after and I'd Kiss. left Rose... <laughs> yeah, that's right, Kiss down would here. Have been early 70s as well. Yeah. So after I'd left Rose Morris, the, the Count Bishops, which I then joined, got an endorsement with Marshall. Okay. So we went down to Rose Morris and chose the Marshalls we wanted. I plugged in about five of them and got them. They all sounded different. Yeah. As it Because it was all yeah. hand-wired. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. They are all hand-wired and every valve was different too. Yeah, true. Yeah. And that makes a difference. I mean, yeah. it does sound like we're being old fuddy-duddies. Like, oh, how can it possibly make a difference? But it does. Of well, you've got does. to turn it up loud before you can hear that. Because if you're going to run it at one, you're not going to hear the difference. No. But as soon as the power valves start coming in, that's when the tone starts appearing. Yeah. And so I tried five heads and said, I want that one. Do you still have any other stuff that no, you had back then? because it was all in England. Oh, yeah. true, yeah. yeah. Um, so what guitars were you? I was using yeah. a Fender Telecaster. Yep. Um, which, of course, you've got to look at the EQ on a Marshall amp because a Fender Telecaster through a Marshall amp can take the fillings out of your teeth. Yeah. It's yeah. very trebly unless you yeah. wind it back. Remove eyeballs. Yes, it can. And because it had the four <laughs> input things mm. on the amps. You bridge it. And yeah, so, you yeah. can bridge it across, that's right. Yeah. But one channel is much treblier than the other. Yeah. Well, I used to change my strings every two nights. The first night, I'd have to go into one channel, and the second night, I'd go into the other one because it was okay, brighter, to brighten it up. And hop it the other way around. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But I, can, I can still remember it being very loud, and the first chord you played, people were going like this. <laughs> Because there were two guitar players. Getting we both smacked had, by the air coming Yeah. <laughs> we both had stacks, which were flight-cased, which was very nice. Yeah. Um, and the bass player had a stack as well. Wow, okay. It was loud. I can imagine. Yeah. The loudest thing I've ever heard is Motorhead. Yeah. Because well, that's a lot of people say they were the loudest band ever. Oh, they were they? ridiculous. No. I've never heard anything so loud in my life. Well, the band I was in with Lucas, the first drummer in Motorhead, yeah. we all went to see Motorhead, and because we all knew Lemmy as well. Yeah. And... We went to the gig, and then afterwards we went to the after party, and 
I thought, I don't know how you guys can hear anything at all. Because went, everything... <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's the only place I've ever seen the roadies wandering around with their eyes bulging out from the sound yeah. pressure. Yeah. And every yeah. song sounded like somebody throwing a dustbin full of bricks down a stairwell to start with. <laughs> oh, there goes that again. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there's an interesting story too. I don't know if you know the Beatles' White Album... Um, long, long, long. It's a really slow song by George Harrison. Yeah. At the end of it, there's this weird modulating noise, and it comes from a wine bottle being left on top of a Leslie cabinet. <laughs> oh, okay. And it sounds like that. This is a, uh, a lamp. Oh, yes. A lamp shaking on top of a speaker next to the. That's right. Yeah, so don't put things on top of your speaker cabinet <laughs> because they bounce off, <laughs> as we all up. know. Don't put drinks on top. No, 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 no. You That's don't. a no no. <laughs> definitely don't. Yeah. I, I had like <laughs> that situation once at a. <laughs> It was, a, it was a reasonable size sort of festival stage. Backline's there, and I was playing bass in a band. Mm. And I uh, had a can of soft drink on top of the bass head. Oh, nasty. Playing away. And uh, without saying anything, the monitor guy comes up, lifts up the drink, and puts the coaster on it, puts it back down. Oh, really? Yeah, I felt bad this week. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I get a point. Put I'd have put it in a bucket, probably, and then put it back on top. <laughs> or taking it, it off. It was so yeah. subtle. And, like, yeah. <laughs> I get the point. Yeah. I get the point. Yeah. Yes. I'll put it on there. I'll yeah. put it on there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes, you feel silly, don't you, when you yeah. first start? Because there's so many rules you don't know about, especially when you're talking big equipment too. Yeah. And in the days when I was playing bigger places, we had no in-ear monitors, so we had wedges everywhere. No. But we had side fills too. Mm. You know, massive side fills, like yeah. almost as big as a small front of house would be now. Yeah. And that's why it was so loud. Yeah. And playing with no pedals at all, no tuner, because there weren't any. Yeah. We used to have to tune up out the back with a con strobe tuner. Mm. You know oh, one yeah. of those? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. The first one I had looked like about the size of a toaster. <laughs> and it had that thing that you've got on the edge of record decks, you yeah. know, to get the speed right. Yeah. Look that up if you can. <laughs> uh, it's funny, yeah. you see some pictures mm. all, like of, of Jimmy Page and stuff sitting on stage yeah. with a tuning pipe in his mouth. Yes, that's right. Like mid-gig. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the best person for that is Jimi Hendrix, because if you look at him playing solo, sometimes he's tuning up while he's playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By ear. Yeah. yeah. While he's while he's playing this holocaust of feedback and wah. Incredible when you think that's about like, it, isn't it? Like does, what is his spinal tap the thing when he when he has the guitar? He has one guitar. And he's playing the other with a violin. And he's, and he's a yeah. violin as well. And he just tunes it a little bit. <laughs> yes, that's right. And it's all just feedback and yeah. noise. But he just kind of looks at it and he yeah. just tunes it a little. Oh, just a little tweak, <laughs> yes. I, I learned some interesting trivia about Spinal Tap yesterday. Oh, oh really? really? Do share. <laughs> you know the scene with all the Les Pauls, like the 59? Yes, like, yeah. Where you just don't even look at that one. That's the same thing. Yeah. That's, a, that's a Jeff Beck thing, isn't it? Isn't that, wasn't that a, like a... Uh, a dig on Jeff Beck don't even look at that one no well he's modelled a lot of what he says on Jeff Beck if you yeah. listen to Jeff oh, Beck yeah? talking he sounds a bit like Nigel Tuffle he looks yeah, right. like Jeff Beck yeah. too with the hair and everything yeah he's not an exact copy but he says that's where a lot of it came from yeah. I think yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah so what were you going to say um, well all those guitars came from Norm's rare guitars in LA oh did okay. they really yeah ah that explains why they were so good looking yeah. and so vintage yes like the mm. real deal yeah yeah. yeah but it's not turned on no, but you would if it was. <laughs> uh, if you haven't seen Spinal Tap, it's just one of those movies. Have you ever seen you've the got se- to watch the second it. one. The second Spinal Tap, even when they do the live concert. Yeah. Yes. The um, amp capo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, that guitar he's got with about five hundred pickups on it. Oh, uh, it's, just, it's, all oh, it's just a classic. All They're of it, fantastic, isn't it? That, yeah, if you haven't seen Spinal Tap, go and watch it. Shame on you. And go and yes. watch the <laughs> get the DVD with all the, the outtakes yes. that are just about as long as the movie. Yes, itself, they are, and they're just as good as the movie. The, when when they get the driver <laughs> off his face and he's singing into a pizza crust. <laughs> yeah, oh, when he's that. yeah, oh, you it's, should. That's on the oh, second been, disc. It was a long time ago. Is that what yeah. I watched it last? But it's a, such a great movie. It is. It's <laughs> very, very funny. All the stuff. Did, did you watch um, the other mockumentaries like uh, Mighty Wind? And yes, I've got Mighty Best Wind. In show. Yes, they Best did, in Show. That's great. Yes, Best in Show <laughs> is funny. Yes, <laughs> that's fantastic. They did another yes. one about two years ago. A new one. Oh, did they? It was called Mascots. Oh, really? I haven't yeah. seen that one. I think it was on Netflix. It's about um, you know the mascots are like football games in America. Oh yes, it, it's like a, a um, convention for those. Oh to, okay. To do the best dance and well, a lot of the same cast. Right. And, so uh, the three main like, people in it: Harry Shearer, Michael McKean, and Christopher Guest. 
who, oh, in, for those who don't yeah. know, Harry Shearer does the voices on The Simpsons. He does, he does most of the voices. Yes, he does most of the voices. And it's oh. very funny. If you're into music of any kind, you should check out definitely I a Mighty Wind and Spinal Tap. Yeah. yeah. Mighty Wind, the, 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 Mighty Wind's the very folk funny. thing. That's yes, fantastic. that's really good. He's a, he's a female double bass player. Yes, that's Harry right. Shearer. <laughs> Waiting for Guffman, that's all. Yes, that's the other one. Yeah. Yes. Well, they put on that production in the small theatre. Yeah. Yeah, they're great, all really good. Great movies. Definitely check them out. Sorry, I, I interrupted. Not at all. So, Motorhead. <laughs> Motorhead are the loudest thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. But they had this great lighting rig. Um, it was about the time of Bomber. And have you seen their Bomber lighting rig? No. Check that out. This is in the early days of lighting production where you know you had past 64 cans and things yeah. like that. So a big light show was 64 cans. A big, you know, a really big one was 120. Yeah. And they had this thing made out of tubular steel, which okay. was in the shape of a Lancaster Bomber. Okay. With rotating lights where the engines would be. And it yeah. used to come down like this. Okay. It was really cool. Um, yeah, that's a, worth checking out. There's a Facebook group called the Parkan Appreciation Society. Oh, you're joking. And it's got all these great old photos of just walls and like ceilings. Of pipes, like, like, hundreds of <laughs> There's some funny stuff out there. There's isn't some great there? photos on there. <laughs> People have way too much time on their hands. They do, to be honest. There's yeah. a, I mean, it's a completely different thing, but I keep, uh, I started liking them just because it's funny. There's a, uh, like, a f uh, like a fake flat earth. Society on, always there, and they try to keep convincing everyone that Australia doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever actually met anyone from Australia? Have you, do you know anyone has ever been there? They don't exist. <laughs> but if, it's like Tasmania with us. Yes, that's right. Yeah, but if the Earth was flat, cats would have pushed everything off the edge by now. <laughs> they would have. They would yeah. have. Because they're jerks. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I mean that's completely unrelated. Okay, it is totally unrelated. If you, get, if you get a chance, check it out because it's it's hilarious. They're really pushing hard, trying to convince people. That's it's, fabulious. It's a joke. <laughs> that, that is great. <laughs> oh dear. So anyway, as I was saying, um, huh. yeah, I just had a Fender Telecaster and the lead. That was it. Yep. No, it yeah. didn't have any effects, and you had to tune up backstage, and then that was it. So yeah. your biggest nightmare was when you're walking out to a dark stage and somebody knocked into your guitar. Like, oh, no. oh, I've got to go back and tune again. And again, we, we used to tune as we go. Yeah. Because it was really hard to, to do anything else. There was no other way around it. No. The first pedals I had weren't... Um, actually, I didn't get any pedals, I think, until oh, at least four years after that. And then that was a wah, the first pedal I got. Yeah. Because everybody had a wah then, and it was great. And it was a crybaby. Very good pedal. Well, I guess there would have been a, a Vox or Crybaby. That would have been the, the yes, choices back yeah. then, pretty much. There was one called Color Sound before that, which oh, yeah, were the Color first pedals. Do you remember those? They were really tinny-looking things. Or skinny, long... Yeah. They were, they were English, weren't they? Color Sound? That was an English, yes, they were. English brand. Yeah. Because yeah. they had to... Did they make the tone bender, the original tone bender? Uh, oh, gosh, color I don't sound? remember. Might have could. I think they could made the original tone bender... Um, yes, I think you're colors, probably right. Color sound, I, I mean, the first pedals I was ever aware of were Jimi Hendrix's, made by Roger Mayer. Yeah, yeah. as we all were probably. Yeah, Fuzzface and things like that. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, what about treble boosters? Well, treble boosters were no, first incorporated in amplifiers because the AC30 had a top boost. There was also yeah. like a top amp box. Yes, version, there was. There? Yeah. You could add to um, well, the Range Master. Box wasn't it? That was one of the first ones. So that's a that's pretty much a treble booster. I think that's a treble booster too. Yeah, and, it's and just you the could box get it on top of the amp, and you yeah. Yeah, and you could get a plug-in treble booster too for guitars. I remember yeah. seeing those around too. It was like went into the jack. Well, that's the electromonics, I think. Mate. Yes, I the think so. Scre screaming bird, bird, or something like that. And it was oh, this, okay. Or LP, there was the LPB as well. I think. Oh, okay. And either these things, little boxes, you plug into the guitar, and then you plug the lead into that. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah, I exactly. I think electronics like that, yeah. used to make them back in, and yeah. that's what the fu the muff was then later based on. The big on. muff, because it was uh, one cascading into another or something, or something like that. Like that yeah. Like that. Really? yeah. I, I remember the first electroharmonics pedal I ever saw because I was at the time I was still working for actually yeah I was working for Rose Morris. They imported MXR. Okay. They were the first pedals I'd ever seen. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the first ones didn't even have um, a power supply input. They were all battery. All battery, yeah. yeah. They only had about four. Was um, it like a booster or something? For Distortion Plus. Oh, all right. That's yeah. been around for a while, uh, The yeah. Dynacomp, the red one. Wow, that, that um, was... Because that's... that's um, Andy Summers used to use that. That was yeah, quite famously. That's right. that was yes, the, that's the, 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 the police, police sound, the Dynacomp, yeah. yeah. But they had, they had the Phase 45, Phase 90, and Phase 100. The Phase 100 was quite big, orange pedal. Yeah. Um, and... There was one other octave. There was an octave pedal. Oh, I'm gonna be. Yeah, go for it. Another Jaffa. 
So, um, so those pedals, I had a couple of those, but I didn't like the tone of them much. Yeah. Um, and because I wasn't really playing music that demanded anything like that, there was nothing like chorus. Oh, there was a flanger as well. Um, the, yeah. Um, but the, the boss chorus came out like... The mistress. Uh, 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 electri- no, mistress? that's like electroharmonics. Uh, electric mistress. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I was working at a trade show um, with the MXR stuff and with a guitarist called Adrian Legg. Have you ever heard him? No. Look him up. L-E-double-G. He's a really great picker. Okay. And he was demonstrating and I was talking about them. And this guy came and said, oh, hi, I'm from uh, USA. I've just got this new brand of pedals, Electro Harmonics. We said, oh, okay, break it out. Let's have a look. And the first ones were quite crude looking in tin casing almost. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's right. Well, As Gabor holds one up, it's plugged in. But yeah, oh, is it? In, yeah. What is that one? Uh, the Holier Grail. It's oh, okay. Reboot. Well, yeah, the first one was like a big muff or something like that, or a flanger, I think. I can't remember what it was. Electric Mistress, I think it was. Yeah, well, electric, yeah, and that and a big muff, and yeah, they would they would have oh. been the first few ones. Yeah, that, they were that they it's modulation. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a mod, mod pedal. Oh, yeah. So he 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 said, "Can I plug it in through your Marshalls and stuff?" I said, "Yeah, sure, go for it." So he plugged it in, of course, forgetting. That the power in England is 240. Oh, not, not, yeah. And it made the most spectacular noise before it blew up. <laughs> it was like a helicopter going. <laughs> Lovely. Wow. We said, cool. wow, that's good. How, how much are they? That would have been hardwired too back into those. Yeah. That would have been hardwired yeah. into it. Yeah. How, what settings have you got on that? And it just fried it completely. And of course, he'd come over from the USA with this trying to get a distributor to take them up. And of course, he just blew stuffed everything his out. complete chance of doing that. Because, yeah, they would, have been, they would have been hardwired into the mains. So you would. would it would have been not a not a. Power it wasn't a war war, no, because they didn't exist. That's what I mean. It would have been hardwired. Yeah, into that's the right. Thing. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Completely a hardwired wrecked lead. The whole pedal, totally yeah. stuffed it. Yeah, yes. Black inside. <laughs> uh, pretty much, I imagine. Yeah, he went away with his tail between his legs. I must admit. Yeah. Um, that's unfortunate. Yeah, that that was the first pedals I came across. I think the MXR ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really get into pedals until I came to Australia in the eighties. Okay. Because up to that point, I'd been playing in originals bands all the way. So I did it kind of the opposite way around to most people. Yeah. I was lucky because of the involvement with Blast Furnace and the Heatwave and the Bishops that I, I went straight into bands that were making records. Um, the Bishops made three albums. I, I'm not on any of those. I just I stood in for a guitar player who actually unfortunately had a terrible accident in his Aston Martin and went into a tree. Yeah. And they called me in to do this tour for their last album. Yeah, yeah which is a sad way to, to be. But at least it went in style. Well, that's true. Um, it's a pity because he was a, he was a bit of a mentor. Zen, his name was the okay. guitarist in the Bishops, who um, looked after all the younger bands too, helped okay. produce them and things like that. And Zen actually produced our first record, the one with okay. Phil Lynott and Bob Gildafon. So when I came out to Australia, I then started playing in covers bands. Well, the first band as you do I, around here, yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. It's an Australian thing. But the first band I played in. Um, the drummer from the Count Bishops had been deported back to Australia because his visa had run out. <laughs> Lovely. Um, yeah, and he'd actually been in Buffalo as well. Okay. With Dave. He was on their first record, the one that went gold. Uh-huh. And he was approached by a guy who said, would you like to get a band together to support John Mayles Blues Breakers who are coming out from Australia? And we thought, yeah, that should be okay. So we recruited a, a bass player, another guitar player, and then we flew Dave over from England, Dave Tice the singer. Yeah. And we toured with John Mayles Bluesbreakers. So the first place cool. I played in Australia was Selena's Coogee Bay Hotel. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is enormous. Where, yeah. I lot, where I later saw an excess play. Okay. Um, and that was my first experience. Wow. And watching John Mayles Bluesbreakers play was amazing because you aware of John Mayles' band? Yeah. And his importance in terms yeah. of rock history, Eric Clapton and yeah. all those people. <coughs> well, in his band... Who, sorry, who was the rhythm section in the band? Ah, I'll just tell you. John McVie from Fleetwood Mac. Ah. Huey Flint was a drummer. And on lead guitar was Mick Taylor from the Rolling Stones. Oh, wow, okay. So that was quite a good band. That's not to a bad band. <laughs> well, every night I watched Mick Taylor playing slide and I thought, Wow. He was an incredibly good slide player. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Mick Taylor was probably the most musical guitar player they ever had. Yeah. He was really a musical genius. Yeah. Very, very good. I got to see um, Mick Fleetwood's blues band. Oh, how was that? A year or so ago. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Was he six, 76 or 77 or something? Oh, okay, yeah. And his, what a drummer. Yeah, absolutely. And the whole time just grinning. Like, yeah. the best time. Yeah, just really in the pocket the whole time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, this band was phenomenally good, but John McVie was kind of on a sabbatical from Fleetwood Mac, trying to escape, I think, some kind of law problem in <laughs> America. 
and he was unfortunately going through a period of extreme alcoholism. As I believe in the eighties, quite a lot of I mean, not the mm. alcoholism, but uh, mm. tax and law things. Yes, that's there right. Were quite a few bands in the eighties yeah. that. Uh, Substance. came to Australia actually yeah, <laughs> that, that's, yeah. Australia was sort of a bit of a yes. safe haven for some of English yeah. and American bands yeah. that had law Con- and tax context. issues yeah and John Levy <laughs> was a great player the whole band locked yeah. together yeah. so tight but he was so drunk some nights that one night he fell off the stage backwards and was out for two numbers okay yeah and wow. I, I, I'm, I don't have any problem saying with that because you know the whole of the Bombay rock in the Gold Coast saw it yeah, okay, okay. And they played two numbers without him. Yeah. Mind you, it was 42 degrees inside with no air conditioning, so it's not surprising Ooh, no. he killed over. Yeah. Yep. Um, and that was my first experience of Australian conditions, wow. how different it all was. It and would be quite, yeah. Um, do you remember Cloudland in Brisbane? Yeah. Yeah, I played there too. I was most amused by the dance floor that moved. Okay. You know, I had a dance floor <laughs> yeah. that was hydraulically assisted. Well, they've renovated it the last few years. Yeah, I presume they haven't done the floor. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't, you, been, in don't there, think haven't so. been in there for a long time. You used time. to have to strap the PA down. Okay. Because otherwise the PA would start bouncing away the same way your drink does on top of the bass cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a bit scary. End up, you start the night on that side of the room and you finish on the other side. That's of the exactly room. right, yeah. <laughs> so going back to pedals again. Yeah. yeah. Um, all the sessions I did in England, by the way, were mostly for things that you would never have heard of again, like demos for songs that were going to be put to big artists. Okay. And I did some weird stuff <clears> too for. Or one I got called up by a friend of mine and said, Hey, can you come down and play about 30 seconds of country music on an ad for carpet cleaning? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, did you ever um, work at, what was that studio called? Mayfair in London? No. You didn't? I, I mean, a lot of this is a blur because I did everything so fast and I was quite young. Yeah. And it came within the period of about, you know, five years. Yeah. And because you couldn't record at home, there was no way you could do anything. You did demos in studios, you did records in studios, you did yeah. sessions for everything. Yeah. Some of which never made it anywhere. But I, I would have worked probably in at least 10 or 15 studios, and I can't remember all of them. Yeah? Yeah. That's and they, not a bad thing to read. No. <laughs> but they, they would have all been 8-track at least for demos. Yeah. Or, you know, 16 or 24 or 32 for other stuff. Yeah. Um, but the best ones were definitely the Virgin Studios. That, that was the one in London, not the... Um, that was the Virgin uh, Townhouse, yeah. that it was called. And that was the most spectacular room I've ever seen. Okay. The acoustically brilliant with one wall that was like marble or something. Yeah, Because uh, Virgin Records was huge by then. Yeah. You know what they made all their money on? Yeah. Tubular Bells. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, he was the first, oh, yeah. 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 And right. I bought Tubular Bells when it came out, and the Virgin Records store was uh, upstairs somewhere in Oxford Street or somewhere like that. Yeah. And I bought my copy, and I now realise that the guy that I bought it off was Richard Branson. Oh, wow. Yeah. He handed it to me and took my money. Oh, wow. Because he was working behind the counter that day. Wow! Yeah, isn't that weird? <laughs> he's a yeah, he's a quirky man, Richard Branson. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But going from that <clears throat> to you know founding a whole company just based on one record is quite amazing, isn't it? Yeah. When you think about it, that sold millions. Well, yeah. And then of course he got licensed for The Exorcist. You know the movie The Exorcist? Oh, did he? Okay. Yeah, that that one section of Tubular Bells is is on. Oh, that's sorry, Richard that Branson me. ringing now, is it? Yeah, sorry, Richard. Mm. Dicko. I thought I'd put yeah. him. <laughs> Dicko, yeah. Dicko Branson. Dicko Branson. He owns an island, doesn't he, in Noosa? Yeah. Yeah, I played there just the other day. Oh, did you? How was yeah. it? Make Peace Island. Yeah, what's it's it beautiful. like? Beautiful. Is it really? Yeah, it's a it's a really nice place. Wow. Um, it's a stupidly expensive. Okay, for for people that don't live in this area, no. <laughs> which is paradise. Which is it's a nice spot around here. Yes. So uh, uh, I live just outside of a place called Noosa, and there's a. Uh, a well, it's a river slash, what do you call it, Estuary, estuary? Mm. It's a big river. Like a big river yeah. thing. And there's an, a heart-shaped island, mm-hmm. uh, which Richard Branson bought, uh, which on either side of the river, um, it's national parks, so there's no, you can't build there, or so mm. it's, it's fairly secluded. Yeah. And he, he built this island and he put this, uh, I don't know how many star resort on it, and it's ridiculously expensive for night to stay there. Mm. And you pretty much, if you stay there, you ha- you hire the, the whole island. So you can't have, you know, different people that don't know each other stay on the island at the same time. So it's always, I think you can have up to 20 people. It's, it sleeps up to 20 people or something like that. Mm. Um, and it's like a, I don't know, incredibly high star resort and you have your own chef and your own boat captain who's on call 24 hours a day if you want to go anywhere and all that sort of stuff and 
U2 stayed there mm, and, you know, right. like, all, like quite a lot of famous people. Um, Paris Hilton stayed there for a while and all that, you know, people like that. And, yeah, I played there at the function not long ago and it was, yeah, really nice place. Mm, beautiful I can place. imagine so. Um, all um, sort of very uh, Southeast Asian look. Oh, okay. Sort of, sort of Indonesian Bali sort of kind mm, of look mm. everything, but yeah, beautiful. Cool. Mm. So it is possible to make money out of music. <laughs> and it still is. That's you now. Mm, See, we're all getting phone calls left, right, and centre. Um, well, it is if you if you um, if you're willing to um, if you're willing to sacrifice to a certain degree and uh, not just be a hundred percent. This is the way I want to do it. You exactly. Can music. You can but make then a living out of music. You've got to equate that to the same thing in the real world too. If you were a plumber who did nothing but wash basins, you probably wouldn't get much work. No. Well, that's exactly right. If you're prepared to do everything, then you will. And I've always had that philosophy that I would play whatever was wanted. That's it. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. I would rather play music than do anything else. Exactly right. And if you're prepared to do that, then you will make a living. But if yeah. you say, I'm going to play nothing but this, you, I'm going to play nothing but blues, and I'm only going to play an E flat. You limit yourself to You're nothing. massively limiting yourself. Yeah. Or I'm only going to play these guitars. So my philosophy now, I mean, the first pedals I actually owned and used regularly were the Boss C2 chorus, the blue one that yeah. everyone had. Yeah. I also had a Boss Digital Delay, the first series of those that came out you yeah. know that sort of off-white coloured one yeah, yeah. Um, I had a TU-12 tuner rigged up with a Dodd um, AB pedal so I okay. could switch between the two lines yeah. and the first pedal that I really fell in love with was a Proco Rat the Rat yeah That's which I loved and oh, that went through I had a strange Japanese copy of a boogie amp called a Jug Box okay which is fabulous it's the same it's the same circuit as a Mark 1 boogie okay and I've had it tweaked a few times yeah. Um, do you still have that? Yes, I do. Cool. And it's still flight case and everything ready to go. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Um, And I don't use it much anymore because I don't play live very much now. And it'd be loud probably too. Uh, yes, loud. it is. Yeah. But that with the rat sounded fantastic. Okay. Really good going through a valve amp. Yeah. Um, Rats just have something. I've yeah, they got, do. I've got an old rat uh, and I've got mm. the... the Rat juice tone, the two, oh, the double okay. one. Oh right, yes, two rats together. Right, yeah. In excess used to use that too. They okay. they use two rats in series. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's they, got a great tone. They, they just have something. That's it just, just pushes the amp into overdrive, I think, more than actually being a distortion pedal too. It just raises the gain so high. Yeah. Because yeah. um, it's a very smooth sound. It's a great. Um, I, I've always had a liking for rats yeah. and rat style pedals. Yeah. That was always. Um, but then I started working for the company that imports Zoom. Well, actually, I was just about to get to that because mm. you are in Australia. You're, you're still the, the, the I'm still the, the first Australian point of contact for, for Zoom help, service. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I do phone service for for Zoom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's mostly software based now because that's most of the issues that come up. Yeah. Um, and I've been doing that for over ten years. Yeah. And I first started doing that because I worked for the company and I travelled Australia demonstrating the Zoom recorders when they were hard disk recorders. Which we were just talking before. Mm. I think that's possibly how I met you. It might be, yes. It may have been through our uh, multiple times mentioned uh, combined friend, Mr. Ben McGregor. It could be, yes. Or it was when I used to work at the music shop and mm. you used to work for Dynamic Music that's and right. used to come and show the Zoom stuff. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure, and it would have been... Around 2004 or five, we sort of worked out before we yeah, well, I, I started working for them in 1991. Okay. Um, which shows how old I am. <laughs> and so I've been through all the first generation of Zoom stuff too, which is the very first multi-effects processor. Do you know what was the first multi-effects processor? Uh, what did they have? They had the. It was probably there was more before that. Like, are we talking rack or f or? No, pedal? just the first multi-effects of anything. Well, probably Zoom. No, it's Yamaha. Was it Yamaha? Mm. Okay. SPX90. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, sure. Yeah. Because when Zoom, <laughs> Zoom... That was the first thing you could do more than one effect at once. Okay. Because I remember an MXR delay yeah. being in a 2U rack size thing like that. And it would do nothing like but that. Rev7. Oh, you're a Rev7, yeah. It oh, was that size. I really like that. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. But so the SPX90 was before that. How much? Yeah, 70. Is that right? Yeah. That's a really good reverb. Yeah. I, I probably like it over the TC. Oh, do you really? It's a bit smoother. Yeah. A bit more well, the SPX90 was um, half that size, like one space yeah. high, and that was the first multi-effects thing that could do delay and reverb together or something like that. Yeah, or flange or whatever. Because, I mean, Zoom were probably one of the first to do the, the floor pedal version. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the first thing they did was the one that fitted on the belt or your guitar strap. Oh, okay. Remember that one? No. No. <laughs> oh, I think okay. the one... 
Was that's it, the very first one they wore. Was it the thirty thirty? Is that was that's one later that, than that? Is it later than that? Yeah, that was the one I remember. I think that which was a mm. four buttons. Or something yes, like that's that. right. But before that, they had this thing that um, it's hard to describe what it looked like. It was about the size of a Walkman. Remember those? Yeah, like a cassette yeah. Walkman. I do. Sadly, yeah. <laughs> I know you sad old person. You, yeah. <laughs> That was a major game changer too, because it meant everybody was listening to recorded music then instead of the yeah. radio. Yeah, but it was about that big, yay big, about the size of a Walkman, and it had two um, pieces underneath it where you could slot a guitar strap through it, so oh, you could put okay. it on your guitar strap because it had no floor controller. You used to have to change it with your fingers. With your fingers, yeah. Yeah, but it had great sounds in it. I remember. Was it Korg? Was it Korg that made the Pandora's box? Yes, that's Korg. Yeah, because that was that another was, thing. It was around. Would have been not much later. Oh, Pandora was way after no, that. Was, oh, was it way after? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was like ninety-seven or something. Yeah, really. Okay. okay well, Zoom so. made two processors first. They made this one that fitted on your guitar strap, and they also made a rack one, which was quite big. Yeah. Um. Obviously, being a rack size. Did they have like aqua greeny colours on it? Uh, no, that was later. That, later. that was another version they had, which had it's a twelve X seven in it. Okay. Uh, that had a preamp valve, yeah. Um, for those of you who don't know what a twelve AX seven is, it's a, it's a little light bulb. Yeah, getting a bit nerdy here, but never mind. Yes, because um, I remember, I remember looking at the. I think it was a thirty thirty. Mm. That was one, and then both of us, one of our first sort of experiences, and we we did a video, and actually, it's a mm. the amount of comments we get. Of, from other people saying it was their first as well it was a Zoom 505 was it really? that was yes. one of our first that um, was a massive cause. seller that one yeah. and yeah. it was I still think it's really actually really good I've still got one <laughs> I've got mine too yeah and it still sounds really good yeah um, we did a video of it and it's it's quite heavily viewed lots of people viewed it and um, mm. the comments usually on YouTube you tend to get a lot of negative comments don't you <laughs> keyboard warriors yeah but that has so many positive comments mm. of people saying, yeah, that was my first oh, effects pedal too. Yeah, inside. I remember when we got it in Australia, the first sample we got arrived at the airport during a trade show. So we rushed down and got it and pulled okay. it out and, and thought, wow, this is really cool. Yeah. First thing with an expression pedal on one side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First thing with a drum machine in it. Okay, well, that, was, oh, that may have been uh, a different one then. 505 was just a two-button. Oh, right, you're thinking about a different thing, yes, yeah, sorry. The 505, yeah, it was I think like about a, 707. Or maybe that was one after. Ah, okay. Sure. Seven oh seven is the one that had a drum machine in it. Okay. And it was one of the first That's ones right. that had a, an LED display. Okay. That was really easy to read. Five oh five. Oh yes, I 505 remember that. Five oh five was like a square thing, two buttons. Yes, yes, I remember. Uh, but I thought it was great. And then I had. Yeah. Um, I had another one. I don't remember what it was called. <coughs> oh, excuse me. And it, I think it had five buttons and a and a. Um, there have been so many pedal. of them. But I mean, they were great. There was one that had two expression pedals on too. Oh, yeah, the bigger end. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was only about that big. It was, it was, it was an ABS chassis. Big. Yeah. And yeah. that was really good. I used that for ages. And mm. I, there was also a rack one, the first rack ones, 9050. That's right. Yeah, like yeah, a half yeah, size. That. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. still got one of those, and that sounds brilliant. Yeah. Really good. They were and I used to control the, that with the, the MIDI controller. I think oh. Boss came out with half rack ones about Yes, they too. did. That's right. About the same time. Yeah. yeah. So you could get two units, one next to another, in a yeah. one new rack size. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I used that for years, yeah. too, because I also used to do stuff where I'd travel around and demonstrate Gibson guitars for okay. Dynamic as well. Yeah. And I used to use Zoom effects for that. And I, I did, at one point, used to write sequences using a, uh, a Kawai Q80 sequencer yeah. and I'd put control change information in that oh. and that would change the yeah, yeah okay. so I could be out with a wireless in the middle of the audience and all of a sudden I'd be changing tones and they'd be yeah. how on earth are you doing that <laughs> that's, uh, that's really Magic. nerdy yeah. so just, just very quickly on the side for yes. someone who who used to demo Gibson and mm -hmm. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this whole Gibson thing now where um, the CEO blames music shops for uh, you mean Henry Justice? <laughs> well, I have to be careful about what I say here. Okay. Because Gibson is a large corporation and Dynamic and Gibson parted company somewhat acrimoniously because they just decided not to deal with Dynamic anymore. Okay. And okay. sent a fax saying that's it, bye bye. Oh, really? Via yeah. fax? Yeah. So breaking up with your girlfriend that's, over a text message. Yeah. Pretty much the same thing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> After, you know, about 10 years of business yeah. and gave it to the existing distributor now. Yeah. And Dynamic was always very, very good at uh, a great company to work for, I have to say. Owned by the Stanfords, who Graham Stanford was the original owner. Yeah. Before him, his father. And it's now run by his son. Yeah. Who is a really, really nice guy as well. 
uh, Craig Stanford. Yeah. And Greg McNamara, who's the CEO, is a really nice guy too. Okay. I, I can't say enough how, what a privilege it has been working for those guys because they're so gentle and, and well-respected because of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They pay their bills always on time. Lovely people to work for. Yeah. I can't fault them. Um, and then they went to another distributor who probably wasn't of the same ethical persuasion. No. And if you do that all around the world, you're probably going to have problems. And sure. I would say that if you're not really looking at your finances, and I've just seen you've got a big muff up there, or a double muff. Double muff. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. That's a pedal, by the way. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> in case you're worrying. <laughs> if you're in England, you're probably thinking it's something else. No, just, just the three of us here. Just the there three. is just the three of us here. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Next to that pop The Gibson, the other room, so we're talking about. Yes, it is. <laughs> so I think with Gibson, they kind of let go of the ball a bit. And if you're into somebody for a million dollars oh it's a billion wasn't it, it? Yeah. yeah it's in the but billion but if one shop's into you oh, for sure. a million oh yeah guitar centre yeah yeah guitar yeah. centre's into them for more than a million yeah. I think yeah if you've been used to doing huge business with a shop how do you then say well you're on stop credit yeah and I think that might yeah. be the issue yeah again don't let my learned friends hear that because that might not be true yeah but I think what's happened is that with the advent of the net people shopping all around the world globally instead of locally now yeah uh, if you're not prepared to come to the party which I have to say that Shake It Up Music is yeah they're very very on the ball with all of that kind of thing which is a local music shop yeah it is our local music store is very very good yeah and um, they always pay their bills on time they never overstock they know exactly mm. what to do they run by very very cluey people yeah that's just good business practice whether it's music or not it is like, but if you get on a roll I think with stocking something and then somebody else comes in and wants to buy something you haven't got oh we need this and we haven't got it but you've already got a million SGs yeah but he wants a purple one yeah then you've got to buy that which puts you in further yeah debt with those people yeah and also because Gibson was run by businessmen rather than musicians yeah it's very hard to predict trends I think if you don't work within this music community uh, everybody I've met that was cluey with music played something or had been in a band or was a yeah. musician because yeah. you can say well no that's a silly thing no one's going to buy that well I mean yeah, they made sure. yeah BB you know, you know King, King's signature headphones I know I mean <laughs> is there such is a thing a, yeah yeah they you're kidding no Jeez. seriously you could buy Gibson BB King signature Lucille headphones okay here's a better one that's the kind of stuff they went into when I was working at Rose Morris we had a poster on the wall for orange amplifiers yeah because you'll never believe who the endorsee was Stevie Wonder <laughs> really yeah. orange amplifier and it said Stevie Wonder plays orange <laughs> and underneath somebody written but he thinks it's Marshall <laughs> <laughs> wow okay yeah it's like flying V's and things like that oh. I mean don't you think there's a reason why some of those blind blues players play flying V's because they said at the factory, here's the new Les Paul. Yeah. <laughs> and he got it home and thought, this well, feels a bit feels pointy a bit at one end. Oh. Feels a bit large down the fin end. <laughs> yeah. But um, I think unless you're a musician, you, it's very hard to make judgments based on what people's taste is going to be or what they yeah. like. Because the, one of the other things that I did when I worked at that company, because I was a guitar player playing regularly, yeah. the people upstairs would often send down for us to come and look at a sample they'd got and say what do you think of this do you think it's going to buy yeah, is, sure. is, it, is it worth having yeah. and one of the ones that they showed me was a copy of a Gibson Marauder which is a hideous guitar yeah really big, awful big failure too massive failure <laughs> along with a Fender Starcaster which is another ghastly aberration when you think about it isn't it I do quite like the look of them though oh it's awful <laughs> to play though and it sounds the terrible head, the headstock looks fantastic I think too. yeah but it's a it's a 335 size guitar with a bolt on neck yeah it's never going to sound that great is it it looks good too I, think, much I think air. it looks good I think it looks it good. looks great but it's too much air it's never yeah, going to sound yeah. that great <laughs> <laughs> now traditionally a glue joint is much better on those type of guitars yeah. isn't it yeah yeah. And I have actually seen in the Gibson factory them making 335s. You know, they make a sandwich of three pieces of ply. Yeah, sure. And the machine they used to make it is uh, was designed in 1928. Okay. And they're still using it. Okay. And the reason that Gibson guitars cost so much is because of their quality control. They're absolutely anal about it. If there's a tiny little knot on the top of a guitar, that's it, it's gone. Hmm. Yeah, really? yeah, and when you hear them doing the sandwich thing where they put you know the grains opposite to each other on yeah, three yeah. pieces of wood and then yeah. they steam them mm. to form that nice shape of the 335 back, yeah. sometimes the wood cracks and it goes off like a shotgun. Oh, okay. When they're doing it, 
and I heard one go, kapow. So I said, what happens to that? And they said, oh, it goes in the bin. Oh, wow. So I said, how often does that happen? He said, oh, about once every five. Yeah. Wow, that much? Yeah. Okay. Because you can't produce a piece of wood that's the same as the next piece, can no, you? Yeah. You never know where the grain's going to go or whether there's a small knot in there that's going to be under a different pressure. Yeah. And that's what cracks them. Yeah. So he said, yeah, and that's part of the reason why you know we go through so much wood. Wow, okay. Mm. And then it all goes down to the Jack Daniels factory where they burn it to make charcoal to filter Jack Daniels through. Oh, really? Yeah, because it's in Tennessee. Oh, wow, okay. That's yeah, because right. the factory's in Nashville. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Oh, well, there you go. There's a... There's a little bit of information there. Yeah. Um, exactly. So back to pedals again. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Speaking of pedals. Yes. Speaking of segways. So, yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, for live, I'm pretty much on the same page as you are, Gabor, where I prefer to take small stuff now rather than big stuff around. Absolutely. Um, I'm at the stage in my life where I don't want to lift an enormously heavy flight case into a, a car boat. I, I don't either, yeah. No. And consequently, everything I did, I played in a wedding duo with my wife for a long time too, where I just played straight into the PA. Yeah, well, that's pretty much what I do now. Yeah. yeah. And again, I think you can emulate reasonably well, for live anyway you can. If I was recording, I'd probably think differently. Mm. But I do use emulations when I'm doing demo stuff at home. Well, I think, uh, and um, I mean, I've, I've mentioned, I've said this a few times, and I've, I've always, I think, copped mm. flack for it. But um, especially on live scenario, and especially around it, I'm not talking about, but even with a big act, because big act you have great consoles mm. and stuff like that but um, especially when you're doing smaller gigs usually you're in a venue that is not in any way made for sound anyway exactly you and you're playing to people that are not necessarily there to see you they're mm. just there usually to have a night out and you yeah. just you just happen to be there mm. and usually you're under strict noise restrictions yes so with all that stuff whether you use uh, a valve amp on the first audible sound, uh, which doesn't sound that fantastic anyway. No, it does Or you use some sort of emulation thing. Mm. No one would notice a difference. No. no one. And as long as you as a player, as long as it doesn't mm. stop you from playing the way you would usually play, mm. it doesn't make a difference. No, I agree. I, I prefer to use a pedal board live because it's easier to get to. Yeah. Um, but for studio stuff, I tend to lean towards guitar rig native instruments guitar rig is fantastic yeah. Yeah. yeah because I can I can actually make it feel like a valve amp yeah while I'm playing it there's a couple of settings in that I uh, my go to settings all the time for lead yeah. stuff yep. and it really feels like I'm playing through an amp so the thing I've been getting into yeah. more and more and I've been talking about it a lot is um, uh, cabinet emulation now. yes so you're still mm. using a valve amp mm. but it's quiet because you run the speaker output into the into it's basically a, a an attenuator. Yeah. Um, you like, don't have a load box. box. You don't have to plug a mm. speaker into it. You plug it into that. You go straight out into the into your interface PA whatever, mm. and you put cabinet emulation on it. Or in yeah. my case, it's a rack mountable thing that has cabinet emulation mm. in it. Mm. So it still feels like an amp. It's still because it is because it is an amp. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, you're just not using a real speaker yeah. and it sounds great I mean the only thing that came up in one of your other podcasts was that I think it alters the way you play depending on what you're playing through it can yeah yeah so if you're playing through a valve amp that's really notched up then it does feel different yeah of course because you're getting well you're getting all that sound pressure for one thing behind you which makes yeah. you play differently yeah. but also the way the amp reacts and it's almost impossible to get that sound one of the things that I used to like about Marshalls was if you wound down the guitar volume it's the only time I've ever done it you could go from a really clean sound to a really dirty just yeah, with one yeah, mic. Yeah. And Jimmy Page used to do it a lot with Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Where yeah. all he was going through would be just yeah. with Les Paul going through a Marshall. Yeah, yeah. And you can get those different tones just by winding it down. Yeah. And the pickup selection between pickups on a, on a Les Paul. Yeah. But you can't, it's really hard to do that with processors. Yeah. Because they don't react the same way. But see, that's with yeah. cabinet, with cabinet yeah. emulation again, because you are playing through an amp. You yes. Can, it does react like does that. Does it do that? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that's a, that's a cool thing I can have at home, at midnight with mm. two kids sleeping not far mm. away. Yeah, I can crank my amp to as loud as I want because yes. it doesn't make a sound; it just goes straight into the PA. But you mm. do you are missing that sound pressure. Yes, it's the pressure that's and it's the how that it, reacts yeah. with your guitar as well because it it, mm. it it reacts with your guitar. Yes, it does. But. Um, it sounds fantastic. Mm. I think um, I'm all for it. And you don't have to lug stuff around and you don't have to worry about... At gigs, you don't have to worry about people whinging about noise. Yes, and also you can get pretty much the same sound every time. Yeah. Well, that's it. You, you, and you mm. hear more and more 
quite big name artists yeah uh, who use that sort of stuff because it mm. means um, front of house mm. it doesn't matter where you play what you do it's yeah that's always right the, it's exactly the same yes and it's more controllable for the engineer too that's what I mean front of house yeah you're not blasting them. the on stage sound yeah. Yeah. yeah especially for like big corporate shows or pop gigs yeah, and stuff where right. they might have like like props or dancers or yeah yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. Anyone's on Wallace and Ears. Yeah, that's right. And the clean back line means that the only thing in the way is the drum. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, gentlemen, I'm going to have to wrap it up soon yeah. because I've got a lot of Zoom work to do. Are we, are we, are we going? Oh, we're over an hour again. Jish. I know. Isn't so, the time, time flies, time flies fun. when you're having Jaffa's, yeah. Tim Tams, and chatting about music. Gentlemen, thank you so much so, for thanks, thanks inviting for coming me. and thanks Not for chatting. All. And, thanks for um, biscuits. Thanks oh, for the you're biscuits. Very welcome. Um, and, uh, like I said before, uh, or always uh, in the podcast, uh, social media stuff, links below. Uh, check out the YouTube channel, Facebook, Instagram, all that crap. All the links are below. Uh, I mean, all the good stuff. <laughs> it's not crap. crap. It's good stuff. It's fantastic stuff. <laughs> That's what stuff. we've been talking for the last hour. And please make sure to subscribe. And and we do this thing, and we're still doing it. Whatever you are looking at while you're listening to this podcast, take a photo of it and um, post it to our Facebook page or email it to us. You can email to us at superfunawesomehappytime at gmail.com. Or you can go to the super fun, awesome, happy done pedal show at Facebook and post it uh, so we can see and just say hello or something like that. So we know you don't have to be in it, just what you're looking at while you're listening to the podcast. Um, And thank you to everyone who's done it in the past. And uh, yeah, and that's about it. Thanks for coming, Andy. Thank you, Gabor. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate your time. And if you want to play music, don't give up. No, keep doing it. Keep doing it. And on that note, cue music. (laughs) 